Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today I'm going to have a great conversation with Dan Culpepper. I think this will be the third interview I've done with Dan over the years, but it's been over a year since we've caught up with his adventures, and he has a great tale to tell about his sailing adventures for last summer. But before we do that, let's get on. But before we do that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. All right, before we get on to the main body of the podcast, the the interview with Dan Culpepper, let's answer some questions. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. Well, I got another Patreon and that's Mike Maddock. And I wrote Mike, I said, Mike, tell me your story and what you'd be interested in hearing about on the podcast. And he wrote me back. He said, hello, Franz. First off, thank you for putting your podcast out there. I appreciate the time you spend to put it together for us. It really helps to have an extended format, many different episodes to cover the topic of cruising the Mediterranean and beyond. Been a little late signing up for Patreon. I started listening last year, but I'm happy to be on board now. Last summer, I asked you a question about good sailing areas in Spain while I was there working. Thanks for the answer. And I ended up spending my week off in the northwestern region of Galicia. Galicia? Galicia? It was great. Wonderful fishing towns, forests, beaches, cool cities, good people, old local sailboats, and cool, wet weather. To answer your questions, my story, I've I've always wanted to sail, but did not grow up near a sailing area or with anybody who sailed. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico now. Eight years ago, I started building out canoes for sailing and taught myself that on our local lakes. I've been having lots of fun learning the physics and how to control a sailing canoe in 25 to 30 mile per hour winds. I have an old O'Day day sailor now. It's almost ready to get in the water. My goal is to train up and be able to charter and cruise in different places around the world. 
I am signed up to do the Caribbean 600 race with Andy and Mia of 59 North in February. I'm really looking forward to that. Suggestions for future podcasts. I'm curious what reefing style you like to use and what electronic chart software you are using, if any. You may have already covered this. Mm, Yeah, I think I have, but I'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, I wonder what Portuguese Lewis Bartons is up to. And I'm very interested in the Sea of Cortez. I'd love to hear interviews of people with experience in this area. I don't know if you're interested in that. We vacationed in La Paz last winter and loved it. Great snorkeling, islands, weather, and sailing. I'm including the contact for Mike Maddap of Go Baja Sailing, a charter company and live aboard sailing sail training outfit. I talked to him quite a bit, and he might be up for an interview. I meet some private people as well who invited us back to cruise with them, and I can check with them to see if they are interested. Thanks again, Mike. Hey, Mike, yeah, uh, I have not reached out to Mike Maddock of Go Baja Sailing yet, but I will. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to talk to somebody about the Sea of Cortez. Years and years ago, when my friend John Quinn was alive, we did a pilot for, uh, for a potential TV or cable TV series called World by the Water. And, and the only episode we did, the pilot episode we did, we went down to Cabo San Lucas and And we filmed an episode of sports fishing boats and pongas and boats indigenous to that area, as well as we did some some footage of uh, the whales that uh, come around the point of Cabo San Lucas. So I've been down there. I've never been to La Paz, but I know I have a friend that has sailed the Sea of Cortez a couple times, and maybe I'll reach out to him, but I will... Put this out to anybody that wants to come on. Drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. Let's talk about reefing styles. I've only done a couple different reefing styles. Uh, When I started racing, we always did slab reefing, where you would lower the the mainsail. Well, as as far as the jib went, when I was racing, we just changed sails. So you had to be good at sail changes. So you drop one sail and put up another sail depending on the wind conditions. As far as the mainsail went, we would do slab reefing, where you would have lines that run out through blocks on the boom, up around a grommet in the sail, and back down to the boom and tied off at a point on the boom. And you could uh, go forward and pull that. There were usually two lines. You would pull one out the very end and then one in the middle. Um, Actually, I take that back. The way I've done it, it's always been one on the clue. There's always been one line that goes on the clue at the different reefing points. And then you would bring that down as tight to the boom as you could. And that's always the challenge, getting it tight to the boom. And then tying uh, gaskets around the sail in the, um, and the grommets that go up the reefing line from the clue up to the tack. And, of course, the tack is now the new tack, the lower tack. It's usually a, a D-ring that you put on a hook. And then uh, after that's all done, then you re-raise the uh, mainsail and tighten it up again. That's what I've got on my boat. That's what I have almost always done on every racing boat I've been on. Now, some of the charter boats have in the mast uh, reefing. In other words, you would let loose on the the clue, and you would let the the sail flutter, and then you would roll it into the mast or, or into a roller furling that is parallel to the mast. 
Now, you can't have any full battens in a system like that. And I've got full battens in my sail. So that, that limits the type of sail you can use with it. When I've done this on boats that have, I've been on that have this system, it's, it, it's prone to having problems. It's prone to jamming. And I've never really been happy with it on the boats that I've been on. I know a lot of charter boats have it, and so it must work for most of them, otherwise they wouldn't have it. But the boats I've been on that have that type of a reefing system or a roller furling system for the mainsail, it's, uh, it's been problematic. Now, I've been, I once went on a race with my friend Ed Valente, and we, we, it was the best um, Mackinac race I've ever been on. We started out in Chicago, and we had great winds all day and all night long, and we're going almost dead downwind. And he didn't have a preventer on his, his mainsail, and the mainsail was so tight that we could not reef it. In fact, I don't even think he had reefing points in his sail, which drove me crazy because we needed to reduce sail area. And we were in danger of an accidental jibe, and there was no way to tie off a preventer on his, on his boom. And um, we ended up tying a line from the, oh, the, the, the boom vang. Uh, this is a, a strut or a sort of a piston s- system that comes out from the base of the mast up to the boom. It forms a triangle. And, and tying that off against the, um, the rail of the boat to, to prevent an accidental jibe. And we were running dead downwind. And when you're running dead downwind, you're just asking for trouble. Well, we did a couple accidental jibes, and it ended up ba- bending his boom vane, which was an expensive fix. And it, it had, what was it? It, was a, uh, it didn't have slides. It had a bolt rope that fed up the... Um, the mast to the top of the mast and that's great because it holds a great shape but it's impossible to uh, to reef easily at least on his boat it was so those are the experiences I've had with different reefing systems slab reefing or some people call it by other different names basically it's uh, the different clues now on my new main sail I on my original sail I had three reefing points on my main sail and by the time I needed to reef, I never went to the first reefing point. I went straight to the second reefing point. And usually fairly shortly after that, if that was a situation and the winds were coming up, I would be to the third reefing point. So on my new sail, I totally eliminated the first reefing point, And then I put uh, an even deeper uh, second reef, which would have been my third reef on my old sail. And uh, I was really happy with that this summer because I had really high winds this summer and I was (laughs) constantly on my second reefing point, which would have been my third reefing point in my first sail or even beyond, even deeper than my uh, third reefing point on my initial mainsail on my boat. So that's the experience I've got with uh, reefing. What electronic charting system do I use? (laughs) Well... A friend of mine gave me an old laptop computer. Um, Maybe it was more of a notepad. It was really a small old notepad, 98, uh, Windows 98 operating system. And and for years, it was a sole-purpose computer. 
And on that, I had Garmin's blue charts loaded on it. And I would use my uh, GPS up on the deck to send down the uh, coordinates on the chart. And, of course, it would track us on the chart. And it was down, uh, down below. The computer was down below. And I just knew, <laughs> this is funny, I knew, I knew that that computer was, uh, was destined for the uh, computer graveyard. And last year, just, just as a backup last year, I made sure I, I bought a new uh, iP- notepad and I downloaded Navionic charts on that notepad. And lo and behold, I got to my boat this last summer and I turned on my computer, my standard navigation computer, and it would not turn on. It would not turn on. It would not turn on. And uh, so this last summer, I used the Navionics charts on my laptop, which was very convenient. But I got used to the Garmin charts and the Garmin uh, software. I sort of missed that. There are advantages and disadvantages to every charting system. I think as a sailor, you should have uh, a couple backups. Of course, I had my notepad, and in addition to my notepad, I also had it on my phone, my iPhone. I had the charts on both of those, so if my notepad went down, I still had it on my, uh, I still had the charts on my iPhone. And, of course, the GPS, I had two GPSs in case one went bad. And on one of the GPS, I, it actually has the charts, GPS Map 76. I think it actually has the charts on that, even though I haven't used the charts on that because it's just too hard to read. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of money on charts and screens and plotters and and I guess they like to spend money. I think a, a very simple GPS with a, a laptop, dedicated laptop, and they're so dang cheap now. Yeah, and so what if you have a couple lines running around the place? So what? It's easy to do. It's easy to replace. I'm, I'm into simplicity. And so that's what I've got on my boat is, uh, you know, I will probably get a dedicated computer for uh, navigation again. I've actually got another computer on board that another friend gave me. Computers are a dime a dozen now. And uh, and the, the reason I like the Navionics, quite honestly, is uh, the charts are so inexpensive. I mean, for 40 or $50 a year, you get access to all the charts in the Mediterranean. To buy the same blue charts on Garmin would cost me five or six or seven hundred dollars, and the value proposition is just not there with the Garmin blue charts, where it is with the Navionics charts. So I think that answers that question for you. Let me see what else I've got here. Ah, what's uh, what's Lewis Martin's up to? Right after I got your email, I gave Lewis a call. And I said, Lewis, what are you up to? We haven't heard from you in a while. And he started telling me that he, uh, he has been working on the boat much. He's, he's got a full-time job with another company, so he's, not, uh, he's much more secure in his income, but he doesn't have the same amount of time to work on his boat. And I said, Lewis, let me start the recorder now, and we'll do an interview. And he said, no, 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 no. Uh, I'll come back, and we'll talk about some specific topics. And he wanted to talk about uh, putting his uh, glass portholes in on his boat so we'll wait to hear from him again it was good to actually touch base with him I just reached out to him on Skype and uh, so we did have a conversation so he's around he'll be coming on in uh, all the next few weeks and bringing us up today with him it may be a short episode but that's okay I think that answers all of your questions Mike 
And again, thank you so much for being a Patreon. I did get an email, I mentioned it a while back, that wanted me to talk about uh, composting toilets. So I reached out to Jeffrey Trott, uh, who's the general manager and main stockholder of EOS Design LLC. I guess I should say the main manager, the owner of EOS Design LLC, a uh, doing business as Airhead Composting Toilets in uh, Maine, I guess it is. Westbrook, Maine. And he wrote me, I told him, I said, when you get Skype set up, let's do an interview. He wrote me back yesterday, he said, Skype is not an option for me. Just now, after trying multiple times to get my old account back, it doesn't work. I tried to make a new account. I can't get that to work either. Microsoft seems to have put their hands on something that was perfectly fine and screwed it up. There are virtually no instances where I use Skype, so this thing is as far as I'm going. If you have another option, I'm open to it. So I'm not sure if I'll be interviewing Jeffrey Trott or if I will move on to the other company that makes composting toilets. There's two of them that I'm aware of in the United States. I'll have to look up the other one. Um, but quite honestly, let me tell you this. If you want to do an interview with me, if you want to come on the podcast and do an interview, I can call a landline, but it costs me money. Skype gives me better quality. The audio quality is much better with Skype. So if I can't interview you uh, on Skype, probably the interview is not going to take place. And there, there are exceptions to that, but uh, they're few and far between. Got an email from Stefan Groff. He said, have you ever tried to interview Carl Heinz Bestadig? And he's the author of 777 Harbors and Anchorages. I reached out to him, just got an email back from him today. He said, dear Franz, thank you for your inquiry. I don't like interviews and prefer to work in the background. Kind regards, Carl. So, no, I guess I won't be interviewing him. It'd be interesting. And, you know, what I, th- what I think the problem is, is the the language of this podcast is English. He's German. He, he may feel uncomfortable communicating in English. But let me tell you, I've, I, I have so much respect for people that, that speak multiple languages that, uh, because I don't, I just speak English, that, you know, I really appreciate the effort if uh, those that speak other languages come on the podcast, like Lewis. Lewis doesn't have a problem with it. So, no, not going to talk to him. And he did point out that there's another website called w, called wasama.at. Here's the, here's the web address, www.wosamma.at uh, forward slash anchorages. And that will show you all the anchorages and marinas in the, uh, along the coast of Croatia. And I've looked at that. It's a great website. So I will put a link to that in the show notes today. And the last email from today goes like this. Buenas tardes, Franz. I'm living in Barcelona, and I've stumbled upon your podcast last year. Since then, I'm enjoying your stories. They're do-it-yourself advice and interviews. How you talk reminds me of my dear friend, Big Daddy Bob from Cleveland, Ohio. Although I guess that's something different than Utah. Yep, a long ways away from Cleveland, Ohio. I, I did Google Big Daddy Bob, and I didn't find anything except um, some Facebook named that, but I don't think that's the same person. I thought it might be a, 
a radio personality or not, but I didn't find anything on it. Anyway, he goes on to say, however, I wonder why Catalan is somehow not on the top list of destinations for haul-outs, etc. in your MedSailor podcast. There are tons of marinas and services not bad at all, but I might miss the comparison. We have our boat and a marina close to Barcelona, and unfortunately, I have not yet sailed Greece or Turkey. We have been in Sardinia this year, and we will go to the Aeonics. I think that means the Aeolian Islands. Watch your comparisons of various regions of the Med. Thank you for all your good knowledge and the entertainment. Your intro music is very cool and reminds me back home in the 70s. I think he said, in English, you might say, it takes me back to the 70s. All right. Stefan, I wrote you back. I said, you know, Stefan, the main reason I've never really covered the area around Barcelona is I don't have any knowledge of that area. And you've got some local knowledge. Why don't you come on the podcast and, and share your information with us? Share your knowledge with the rest of the listeners out here. I have read uh, reviews of other sailors who have wintered up in Barcelona, and it worked out well for them. But that was so long ago that, uh, that I don't know what the current situation is there. So you haven't responded to my email Again, it may be the language issue, but I I would love to talk to somebody who has wintered in Barcelona. As far as my experience goes, I've never been up to Barcelona except by flying in and then driving down to my boat that I'd wintered. And I only took my boat up the Spanish coast as far as Alicante. And then from Alicante, when I came back, I went straight from there out to the Balearic Islands and then on to Sardinia and Italy and so forth and so forth. So um, I just don't have any information that I can share with you on on Barcelona. I'm sure there's listeners out there that can give us lots of information. So reach out to me if you would, Franz1 at MedSailor.com, and we can share it with the, with the listening audience. And then you asked me, what is your comparison of the various regions of the Med? Well... <laughs> that's that's 150 podcasts all right real quickly the aegean very very windy you need to be an advanced sailor to sail the aegean or at least know how to reef down or stay in marinas when the meltemis are blowing in the summer um, late fall uh, the winds shift around from the northerlies to the southerlies but they can the, the wind conditions can be fairly violent even then as well as early in the year so you need to be a good sailor, I think, to sail the Aegean, the Adriatic, uh, except for the Boras along the coast of Croatia, which can make your evenings and night times very miserable. It can be very good flat water sailing. The west side of Greece, the Ionian Islands, uh, uh, wonderful sailing, but extremely crowded with charter flotilla boats, which in my opinion have ruined the region, ruined the area. Croatia overpriced, but it's got flat water sailing. Uh, Greece is not overpriced, it's reasonable. Prices in Greece are reasonable. Turkey's even more reasonable. Very, very good values in Turkey. Problem I have with Turkey is that, uh, well, I have no problem with Turkey. I just don't trust the government right now. I don't know what Erdogan's up to, and I just felt I wanted to get my boat out of there last year. 
other than that, I've been, I kept my boat in Turkey for over 10 years. So as you can see, I like the Turks and you've heard that before. You know, when I did Spain, I went, you know, the, co the southern coast of Spain is basically a bunch of marina hopping for the most part until they get out to the Balearic Islands. And then there's a few anchorages around the Balearic Islands. You go into uh, Menorca, or excuse me, Mallorca. Mallorca is an extremely expensive marina. Uh, and, but it's a beautiful city to visit, but it's an extremely expensive marina. But I liked it. I've been there a long... It's a long time ago. Remember, it's been a long time since I've sailed through Spain and Sardinia as well. I've spent the last 10 years sailing Greece and Turkey and Croatia, probably the last 12 years sailing Greece, Turkey and Croatia, and a little bit of Italy. So yeah, that's my thumbnail sketch of the uh, of the Mediterranean. In, in Spain, I got caught in the Siracos. There was one time in Spain where we just left... Gibraltar and we'd gone up the coast and crossed into Spain and went into the first marina we could find in Estepona and the Sirocco started blowing and we were stuck in that port for four days which turned out to be one of the greatest experiences of the summer because they were having a big festival in the town and if we hadn't have got off the boat and wandered into town we wouldn't have realized that that this was going on and it was wonderful it was so much fun so we were glad that we were stuck there. We would have never seen what was going on if we just came in, spent the night, and continued on up the coast. So I've, I always make the best of the weather situations, and that turned out to be one of my family's best memories of the summer was those days that we were stuck in port due to a Sirocco blowing in Spain. All right. Uh, let's see, there's something else I wanted to talk about. I'm thinking of doing a charter trip either to Tahiti next winter or Thailand, and I'm looking for people who would like to join me. I reached out to Mike Allgood, who was a crewmate last summer, and he said, count me in. Uh, I could probably just fill this up with friends that I have locally, but I always like to meet new people. So if any of you out there are interested in joining me on that adventure, it would be sharing of expenses. In fact, you'd probably pay a little more than me because I'm organizing it and I, <laughs> I want to get something for doing the organization. So uh, if you're interested in joining me next winter, uh, either in French Polynesia which I've been to before, so I'm really not that excited to go back to French Polynesia. It was great. It was wonderful. But I, I have new, uh, there's new horizons out there, new sunsets to be ridden into. And uh, I've never sailed in Thailand. And my friend Gary Harris did sail in Thailand. He really enjoyed it. And so I'd like to actually go sail in Thailand around the Phuket area. But we'll see. The problem, the problem with Thailand, again, is is what the weather conditions are like. In French Polynesia in the winter, the weather is pretty consistent. You get to Thailand in the winter. You can, If you go in uh, January, it's really, really hot. So it really depends. I haven't made up my mind yet uh, where I'm going to go. But I do want to do a winter uh, charter trip next year, going someplace that I haven't been before, preferably. And if I need to go back to Tahiti, that's okay as well. One last thing, Neil Fletcher, I know you listen to these podcasts and you've been on the Newport Ensenada race. I want to report. Let's do an interview. 
And finally, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, write me, Franz1 at MedSailor, and consider becoming a Patreon or buying some of my audio products, which will help you prepare for the written portion of the ASA 101, the 103, or the 104. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast on iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. I'm back with Dan Culpepper after a hiatus of <laughs> at least a year and a half maybe two years, but Dan, you, uh, you sailed over across the Atlantic, worked your way to Gaeta, Italy, set, spent some time sailing around Ischia, Ponza, um, Capri. I don't know if you got to Capri in the last episode, but it, as my memory serves, you had put your boat up in Gaeta, and that's the last I talked to you. So we've got at least one full summer and maybe even a little more to catch up on. So so bring me up to date. Where's your boat? First of all, where's your boat right now? Uh, Lagos, uh, Portugal, right now. Uh, that's where I left it at the end of last summer ah. uh, in order to get her ready this summer. But I'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that at uh, some point. All uh, right. So, so, so tell, me, tell me about your adventures then. Well, we started in, in Gaeta, where the boat was up for the second year in a row. And, uh, and we, we can talk about the, the whole... Um, the whole idea of leaving the boat for long lengths of time in the Mediterranean, but uh, so, I, so I seem to have solved the problem. So, did you leave it there yeah. for two solid years and you didn't go back the next summer and use it, or did you use it in between? I used it in between. Okay. We, we sailed across in 2015, mm-hmm. and we did the jaunt, typical uh, trip across Bermuda, Azores, and then to the Med, and worked our way through the Med, and we ended up in Gaeta uh, the first year in 2015. 2016, we went back and basically did the islands. So, we, yeah, we got down to Capri. We did uh, Ischia, which was by far our favorite. I think I mentioned that in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bento Tene, and, and the islands kind of all around uh, Naples and that area there. So we went to Sorrento and... And, and I probably discussed that last time. I, I really enjoy kind of being away from people. Uh, and and that was definitely not the place to go in terms of Capri. The rest of the family loved it. My sisters loved it. My family loved it. Uh, just the idea that uh, you could be in Capri, which is absolutely beautiful. But I did prefer myself. I actually didn't even get off the boat in Capri. I just uh, I we were in a kind of a dicey anchorage anyway. Uh, that's there and they went ashore and uh, I just kind of hung out. It was, it was fantastic. The scenes are, as you know, are just uh, breathtakingly beautiful. And uh, I just wanted to uh, chill on the boat. So now, now let, let much- me back up and ask you about Capri because, so you didn't come around and uh, 
an anchor in the little harbor on the north side. Were you on the south side, or were you on the north side anchored yeah, out there? We were on the south side, right next to the uh, the, the main town. Okay. And uh, right to the right to the yeah to the left to the west of of the, where the marina is. Okay. And uh, it's very close to shore in order to get some anchorage. So yeah, it it was a little dicey with the winds on there. I'm glad I I would have stayed aboard anyway, even if I had wanted to go. So um, it was. Uh, yeah, it, I, I found it rather pleasant, but um, it's not the ideal anchorage. As we found in several places, uh, lots taking up with either mooring balls or uh, it's it's being um, it's being monitored closely. So we generally had to get fairly close to shore. We ran into that in, in Sorrento also, but yeah, Capri. We were just there for the day. Uh, we just uh, I anchored during the day. We didn't spend the night there. We ended up going back to Ischia. I think after after Capri, and uh, where the the anchorage is really good, excellent holding. You have options of either side uh, there near the castle, and um, yeah, it ended up being one of our our favorite places. So, but the family loved Capri. the The views are fantastic. We did sail around the north side. We did see the rocks. We did see the uh, the known tourist places. It, it really is spectacular. And uh, so we did make a circumnavigation of, of Capri. Or you and, mean of Ischia? Uh, on, of Ischia. Of, uh, no, of Capri. Oh, we okay. actually went around okay. Capri and uh, we saw the saw what, what would have been the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sites with the rocks. I forget what they're called, the Farol. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and the Blue Grotto yeah. where everybody's. Exactly. Yeah. We didn't go into the Blue Grotto. Apparently it's uh, it was just packed. It was just packed with people. And, of course, we were there and in uh in july or august and and it was just just packed with humanity i mean capri was insane with how many people were there so said the family but of course it, it was beautiful they they still enjoyed it and um but I, I tended to prefer the places where the italians go and that seems to be more like vento tene the island of vento tene and ponza and uh ischia of course which is a much larger island and it seems like the Italians vacation there. And it's just not quite as hectic. You don't hear German, you don't hear English. It's just a, a different. And for me, it, it worked worked better. But, of course, everyone's wired differently. So uh, you know, some you, people love Yeah, you know, when I went to Capri, and this was a long time ago, uh, I my thoughts were exactly like yours, so it hasn't really changed. In fact, it's probably gotten worse during the day. But at night, all the ferry boats, uh, I think they, the, all the ferries, all the tourists that aren't staying on the island have to get off by 7 o'clock. And then it becomes very charming at that point in time. But during the day, just like you're talking about, it's, it's uh, tripper boats coming over and ferries coming back and forth. But at night, uh, if you're staying on the island or staying up in that little uh, harbor, uh, mm-hmm. then, 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 it, then the charm comes back. But I agree with you. I mean, that's where every... <laughs> Every tourist wants to go visit Capri. It seems like. Yeah, and I and, and what I do on a daily basis is I I take a train in New York City. I walk through Times Square. I you know I'm I'm a performing musician, so I'm 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 surrounded by thousands of people every single day, and it really is not the way I want to spend my vacation. Yeah. I really want to get from tourists, and I and I see them a lot. I'm appreciative of them. I I make a living from uh, playing for them, but I, at the same time I. I, uh, yeah, I don't want to vacate in that way. So, which will kind of lead us into, uh, then, yeah, the boat then went back to, uh, Gaeta. I put the boat back up on the land and had some work done on it and, um, and got it ready for, for this past summer. 
All right, let's and talk. The, let's uh, talk about the marina because I've left my boat in that marina. How are you treated by the marina? I know I checked prices on it last year, and their prices are yep. pretty high. Uh, definitely yeah. on the high side. Well, so. it's negotiable. If you're going to have some work done, which I was going to have some work done on the mast and and various components of the boat, uh, they'll work with you, and they'll they'll act absolutely work with you. And it was uh, Joanna and um, uh, Luca are the, the brother and sister who own it and who inherited it from their father. And they're really, really terrific people. I mean, I, I gotten to know them over the past couple of years and they've just been terrific. And again, it's a, a typical in a way, the Italian way of working things, there are prices and then there are, there are discussions. <laughs> and, so, and, and we had discussions. I mean, if you're going to work this much, I, I think they want to make a certain nut from the boat. So uh, if you're going to just go in there and, and just leave the boat, then it's a certain price. But if you're going to go in there and have some work done, uh, then it ends up being about the same price. So I, I opted so, to so get you, some work done. So you may as well have the work done then. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I liked it. It's a very convenient place to get to from Rome. You're flying into Rome and basically taking a train right down. It was. It's very, very simple to get to. I love the little town. I mean, just fantastic uh just walking around has a very old section of the town and waterfront and also i could anchor i could anchor right there in the in the harbor right off of the marina so as soon as the boat was put in the water i wasn't putting it into a slip at you know 100 and something euros a night uh i was just anchoring right next to it and and it was it was easy enough and and the way the relationship i had at that point with uh with luca and anna were were well, it was terrific so i could just bring the dinghy in and do laundry or do whatever like that. So hung out there for a week, really commissioning the boat. So, but last summer we had some adventures uh, in that my, uh, well, some, some sad stuff happened. A couple significantly bad things happened with, uh, uh, first off, my, my uncle was coming across with my, uh, with my cousin and they were going to do the leg from Gaeta all the way to Morocco. And that was, uh, that was going to be the, basic delivery of getting the boat to Morocco. And then the whole rest of the family, about 11 people, were going to join us in Morocco for a couple weeks of land travel. So that was the overall plan. My uncle flew to Rome, and my, uh, he was there for a couple days, and, and my uh, cousin flew in. And uh, they were walking downtown Rome, and my uncle tripped, fell down, and shattered his hip. Oh. And Oh, it was awful. It was really, really awful. And uh, of course, he's a he's a tough old bastard. He just kind of got up and says, "Oh, yeah, I'm not feeling great. I don't know what's wrong." And and uh, they finally got a cab, went back to. They were staying in a in a convent, which is uh, where we have we've stayed before going in there. Uh, in Rome, it's a great old building. Really, the nuns are wonderful. And uh, so my uncle gets back. He's kind of complaining when a nun says, "Well, maybe you should go to the hospital. I think it would be good." So. The, so my uncle goes, okay, walks outside, they hail a cab, they go to the emergency room. Meanwhile, the whole time, his, his hip has been shattered completely. And uh, so he gets in there, and the next morning, he has major surgery. They replace his hip, and, uh, and, and it's really involved. And this is about three days before we were supposed to take off and uh, make the trip. So uh, I was looking at a single-handed trip. I wasn't going to leave my uncle alone. Uh, with just my my cousin with him, so we uh, so we had to come up with another plan. My sister decided she's going to fly in. So uh, Lori, my sister, flew in and checked on my uncle, and then came down the Gaeta, and then she and I double handed 
uh, the boat from Gata eventually to Morocco, but we had to stop a few times on the way. So my uncle's in Rome. He eventually got a flight back to the U.S., and uh, it was was really a terrible, terrible thing to happen. But at the same time, he had had a fantastic doctor who took really good care of him. When he got back to the U.S., uh, the doctor looked at him and said, "This, you know, Arvis did this. And it was really a, a good job. So, good recommendation by the nuns. They went to a, a first-class hotel there. His, uh, the whole thing was terrific. He kept waiting for a bill. There was no bill. It was free. So, <laughs> covered by <laughs> the national health there in Italy. So, uh, just a, a really amazing experience uh, in a, you know, making a good thing out of a bad thing, but still." He uh, so he's back in the, he was back in the U.S. My sister meets me at, in Gaeta. We uh, we decide to uh, to take off and the boat's ready, and we left Gaeta uh, beginning of July and we made our way. We were going to go to Ponza first, which is right off the coast, not too far away. It's kind of just to get get situated. I usually like that on long trips, just to go someplace. Uh, either that day or overnight, just hang out for a little while, just to shake down, make sure everything's working, kind of get in the rhythm. Uh, we're heading to Ponza, but the, the wind was just right on our nose. And so we ended up uh, bearing off and uh, heading to Ventotene, which was, as I said before, one of our absolute favorite places to be. And uh, as we were approaching Ventotene, the single, I, I, this is probably the single most frightening thing that's ever happened to me, I would say, ever on a boat. It's just after thousands and thousands of miles of sailing, uh, something as as simple as approaching Ventotene, where we were sailing, uh, very light wind at that point. We're kind of in the cover of the island. It was blowing from the east, which will end up being a theme of the whole trip. Uh, it was blowing from the east, and we're just sailing nicely, nice starboard tack, and, and coming up to the anchorage. And I had noticed a powerboat was off about maybe 200 yards off uh, – off the starboard side, off my starboard side. And he was kind of floating there for a little while. He'd slowed down and he just kind of stopped, was floating, wobbling around. And I just kind of just barely noticed him, but I was, we were sailing along. Then all of a sudden, he turned and started just gunning, gunning his boat. Now, it's a typical, you know, big, not a huge power boat, probably maybe 25 feet or so with big engines on the back. So what happens to these guys when they just start out is the bow goes way up. And they can't see a damn thing in front of them. They cannot see anything in front of them at all. So my first notice was kind of I saw the blurb on the side, and then I heard this engine. And then when I'm looking over the next time, I see this boat coming straight at us. I mean, literally straight at us. My sister was at the bow kind of getting the anchor ready, you know, what she was going to do in a little while. And I was at the stern of the boat, and this guy just starts gunning it and the boat is all I can see is the bow of the boat and it starts coming towards us, come coming towards us like really flat out fast. And I'm like, what the hell? I turn the engine on. I'm going to try to get out of his way or do whatever, but he's, he's closing too fast and um, he's going to T bone us at that point. He's going right to the, the middle of our boat. And uh, then I remembered that I had my little horn, my air horn, of course, right under me at the helm station uh, on my checklist, you know, one of those things you got to have, and uh, reach down and I let it go, you know, horn, as loud as I can. We're yelling, can't hear anything. Horn obviously gets some contact. A little kid peeks his head out of the top of the boat, 
right out the top, over the bow. I see this little head pops up. And in two, three, four heads all pop up. And they start yelling back, screaming, screaming, right? Yeah. And then, and then the boat all of a sudden stops, you know, slows down, starts wallowing down. And, of course, then the bow comes down. You can kind of see. I mean, literally, I mean, 12 feet from our boat. I mean, 12 feet. Whoa. And, uh, I mean, it was just it, – it still goes through my head every once in a while. I mean, what could I have done differently? Of course, I'm going to go through that scenario. Uh, he was on my starboard side, I, right, I, but I was sailing. But it, it's still the whole, the whole scenario kept going through my head for months after that. Just uh, as the boat wallows down, I see four adults in the back and maybe six kids in the V, v section of this powerboat right there. And I mean, the scenario is just just awful, Franz. It was oh. just one of those one of those things in which uh, he obviously did not check the area around him and the nature of of the boat. Uh, when you're gunning it, you're you're not you have no vision out the bow until you go up on the plane. And he was close to getting up on the plane, which of course would have been just as he just as he t-boned us right there. So, oh boy, my my sister was ready to jump off. Uh, I mean, it was really. Uh, it was a bad, bad scenario. So everything works out. Of course, the wives start freaking out, and screaming at this this guy who's <laughs> driving. So I figured uh, he was in his own personal hell for the next whatever, and uh, realizing what was up. And I'm I'm just uh, you know glaring at him. But we went by, and uh, you know we didn't stop. We were just sailing, and I'm just giving him a look, and he's just being screamed at by by the women aboard the boat. So. Uh, he eventually took off again and left. But um, at that point, we we anchored at Vento Tene. No more excitement. The rest of the trip was pretty pretty uneventful. But that that really was terrifying. And and it's gone through my my mind so many times. Of I should have noticed the boat earlier. Um, should turn the engine on maybe sooner. Uh, but it's, mm, I you know, know. I mean, I no. I mean, you were sailing. I mean, it was. <laughs> There's yeah, nothing you did but, wrong, I don't think. I mean, I know. But believe me, Franz. If if I had been responsible for four or five kids getting hurt or killed or whatever, I mean, it just ramming into my the side of my boat. It's just, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I understand it's one of those things, but I'm glad I didn't have to live with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. If something happened. Well, let I me mean, ask you. Sure. I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Where did you stay in Venotene? Did you go into the little harbor, the tiny little harbor there, or did you go around and? <laughs> No, we just anchored right off that little harbor right there, which oh, I've okay. done many okay. times before. And it's it's good, solid anchoring, and uh, the the conditions were good. The wind was blowing from uh, from the from the west, so we had uh, some protection at that point. Uh, the winds were awful that day, and so we um, yeah, I'd said east before. I meant west. Uh, winds were blowing from the west, so we had good good uh, protection behind the uh, the island right there so yeah we anchored and, and of course took the dinghy into the little town which is terrific yeah i can't imagine I, I know my boat's 50 feet long and there are people just bringing their boats right into that tiny tiny little harbor and it's just astounding i saw a 52 footer uh just just go around in the little entrance and just motor right down and back up and right into this tiny little spot and all the power to them, but uh, they got uh, bigger bigger guts than I have for going into that that tiny little harbor. And of course, they they go in with with an attitude. You know, you're going to go in there and make a spot. You're going to make a spot. And uh, I don't I don't want to deal with any of that. So uh, anchoring off's the way to go. Bring the dinghy in, tie up, have a little pizza there. Walk up to the top, the town that's on the uh, there's a beautiful square piazza that's uh, right at the top 
of the uh, island there. It's, it's just spectacular. So Vento Tene, love it. We we've been there many times, and and that's one of the the memories we'll we'll uh, hold fondly. But uh, but my sister and I just spent spent one night there. We met a couple that we had seen in Gaeta before who was celebrating the birthday of, of his wife, and so we we shared dinner with them. They were terrific, and. Uh, then next morning we took off and we made our way across uh, to to Sardinia. And so we did an overnight and we decided we would uh, uh, stop over in, in uh, Sardinia. So we anchored off uh, Malfatano was the name of this little, uh, little indentation at the southern part of Sardinia. And it was overnight. It was a hundred and some miles, uh, uh, fairly easy travel there we uh we got there the winds were got a little fluky then they got really heavy and so when we got there we got anchored then the winds really piped up and the anchorage was just rocking and rolling and winds were coming in little these little uh waves were white white caps were coming in i said shit, we gotta get out of here so we um uh, up anchored we went out and of course the sea at that point was all messed up and we're smashing into this and smashing. And I said, oh, forget it. We're going to go back. So we go back. Now, literally, Franz, it's two hours later. Two hours later, we go back into the same anchorage. It's like a mill pond. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> mill pond. There is not any – the boats we had seen before are still there. We were the only cowards that had taken off. And we re-anchored again, had a lovely evening, went to sleep. Um, so next morning we take off. We're going to make the, uh, the jaunt. At that point, we're thinking about going straight to Morocco there 700 and some 800 miles uh but uh, we had been in contact with home my mother-in-law was gravely ill um she's been suffering for quite a while and uh, i had found out when we were in uh malfatano at the anchorage right there i had cell service and i had spoken to my wife and uh, she was flying out to california where her mother is and uh, things didn't look good at all and so she was in hospice and uh, I said, oh, man. So so we uh, we left. My sister and I took off. Uh, we ended up uh, getting a little. We had a sat. We had a sat communication, which ended up, of course, not working very well. Um, and and uh, so we were getting weird, weird uh, text. Uh, some some it was just wasn't adding up. Uh, we were about halfway to Spain and I, I got a cryptic message saying saying call home uh so i i was trying to do that with the sat wasn't working uh, i tried to do a cell phone we weren't near land so i rerouted we started heading up north trying to get within the the, the realm of the balerics to uh, get some cell service and we were about 50 miles out when my phone bloop 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 <laughs> so, somehow miraculously i got uh, cell service and at that point i learned that my mother-in-law had passed away oh. and uh, and it, it and so it's one of those times you're at sea and uh, you really feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, even though I was in the med. Um, I couldn't reach my daughters who were still in Connecticut and they were very close to their grandmother. It was uh, a very frustrating uh, time right there trying to, to reach everybody. And of course, my wife was there when, my, when her mother passed away, which was a good thing for her. But um, at the same time, my, my daughters were, were at home 3,000 miles away and so we rerouted to Spain as fast as we could get to uh, Alicante. Okay. So we went into Alicante, a harbor we've been in before. And uh, so it was about a 500-mile trip. We got into Alicante, and um, 
then I got in contact with family, and that was great. We hung out there a couple days, uh, just getting everything kind of situated and and uh, making those bonds, which are so important. And uh, so the, from there, we uh, we had been in Alicante before. It's Ford above, uh, again, a, a, a nice town, big marina, uh, very easy uh, entrance, uh, and, and and just a, a really nice Spanish town to walk around. Uh, but we were on our way. We we wanted to uh, get to Morocco, so we we took off. We worked our way around, and if you uh, look on a chart, basically we worked our way down the, the Spanish coast, and it ended up working well because we were a little concerned. Our initial route was going to be going from Gaeta around the southern part of Sardinia, and then hugging not too close to the coast of Algeria, getting to Morocco. Because as you can see, you know, North Africa. Uh, kind of bulges into the med right there. And in order to get a rum line straight to uh, to Morocco, where we we're going into uh, Marina Smear in, in Morocco, we we would hug the coast of Algeria. And of course, that's a there, there are many issues with Algeria and just be careful. And we we're going to try to stay about 100 miles off. But that point was moot because we ended up going uh, to Alicante. So now we're going down the south coast of Spain. So we go over around one bump in Cartagena. And around the other bump in uh, Almeria, and then the weather starts starts filling in from the west, mm. from the west, from the west, from the west. And uh, and my boat, we've discussed this before. I, I have a Beneteau 50, and in most conditions, uh, she just she flies along. It's a, it's it's a good hull for for downwind. It's a good hull for a beam reach, but boy, it is not a good hull for beating into the seas. Because uh, with a flat forefoot, it, it's just it just pounds. It just pounds, 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 to a point where uh, the previous trip going in into the uh, in, into Gibraltar, the Strait in 2015, it broke a, a sink off the in the front cabin. It kind of has like a, a captain's cabin way forward, and that had a sink mounted to the wall that broke off, and uh, it tore the uh, fiberglass off just by the impacts uh, forward of the boat. So, so I know that those aren't conditions I, I want to stay in for long. So we were beating into those a little bit uh, and then motoring, which is even worse. So I said, forget it. So we went to uh, Almeramar, mm -hmm. Almeramar. So it's a little further west from uh, Almeria and uh, Almeramar. It's a pretty big marina. It's kind of like an expat kind of uh, – we saw, heard a lot of English – uh, sp spoken, uh, British English spoken. And I think a lot of people buy condos there. It's kind of a little uh, development, a big development with a, with a pretty decent sized marina and good protection. And, uh, so we, we ducked in there and then that started the, the saga of, uh, making the, uh, jaunt from there to, uh, to Morocco. Now, and it's, now, it's now, pretty you, now let me yeah. stop you. Since you're in the EU already, you don't have to check in and out of customs as you're going through here, or did you? We did not. Okay. No, we did not. No, no, we're we're good. We had the uh, Italian Costituto, and uh, which was the Italians' version of of checking in. It really was the only country that we had to do that because we had cleared in in 2015 into the Azores, and that that introduced us into the EU at Portugal. And then every country after that was pretty much in in the EU, except when we got to Italy, and Italy required this additional form, 
which the EU doesn't. I think we discussed this before on a previous podcast. And right, it, right. And giving it, that, giving I mean, somebody to fill out that form is always a pain in the butt. Yeah, so. I made I made friends with uh, with uh, Tony and the Italian Coast Guard. Fantastic, uh, he and his wife and and his pals, and I became sort of a mascot for the uh, Italian Coast Guard, and <laughs> it ended up being a. Uh, Terrific experience. I mean, in Gaeta, even this last time, when we, right before we left, we were right at the dock downtown, the Coast Guard dock, for for three days. They just said, "Fine, you know." They they put us right there, so we were the only boat right downtown Gaeta on the uh, the town dock uh, with the protection of the Coast Guard right there. It was it was uh, really terrific. They were wonderful. One can't say enough about the Italians. It was really terrific. But they had they had been able to. You know, finagle stuff to my clock started basically a year later, 2016. I was wondering, so, I was going to ask you about that because now you've been I mean, in the EU for more than the uh, allotted 18, 18 months and they, they uh, restarted your clock for you somehow, huh? Well, that's not true. Yeah, I, I had been there for only 18 months, Franz. Oh, okay. you know, they, <laughs> they, they, they did the Constituto, which started my clock in 2016. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it is the way it is. But and, and if there are any Europeans listening to me right now, uh, we uh, we ended up going to Morocco. So we did restart our our, our clock as of now. Uh, but we uh, yeah, so it's 2017 and uh, we needed to at that point, it's 2016. We had a few months in which we had to get out of the EU. And so it worked out with our plans anyway. We were all along going to end up in Morocco because we had been there in 2015. We thoroughly enjoyed Fez when we were there. And this time we wanted to hit Marrakesh and get into the desert again. So I uh, arranged it with family members. All my sisters showed up and uh, everyone was going to come into Morocco. So it, it made sense for us to, to get the boat there. Uh, last time we there, were there, we basically left the boat in Gibraltar and, and took the ferry across. But this, this time it worked both ways to, to get the boat there so the family could get back on it and uh, also then take us out of the clock. Okay. Restart the clock again. So, so I'm looking yeah. at Google Earth and I see Almeria off to the right. That looks like an industrial harbor, but just to the west of it, there's a town called Agua Dulce. Is that where you're talking about that you pulled in there? Well, it's Almer, Almer, Almeramar. I think that's what it was. A L M E R I M A R. And it's on the, le- the next, you know how you have, you see the little nub sticking out? Mm hmm. It is, uh, it, it's the next nub that's sticking out on the west side of that, Almeramar. Oh, there it a, is. Uh, there it is. Yeah, and I've yeah. Uh, you see a nice little, nice little marina that's right there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, and you, what you do notice on Google Earth is all those nets everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a big agricultural place where they're where they're uh, you know now I feel terrible. I don't know what they're growing, actually, whether it's olives or. But there are massive amounts of uh, nets. You can see them on Google Earth. It's all that white, those white squares. Yeah, and you and can all, see that, them for- all that plastic that's blowing out to sea after a while. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's a big agricultural area except for that that little uh, area around the marina. And I, obviously it's a, it's a resort area of some sort. But it looked like condos. It was pretty empty. We were there even in, in uh, we were there in July. It was, it was still fairly empty. You know, a couple restaurants. People kind of walking around. What were the uh, like what, what was the cost of the marina? Was it reasonable compared to Italy? Reasonable, crazy reasonable. Okay. I think it was twenty five euros a night okay. for our fifty. It was uh, very reasonable, very empty, and I did not understand that at all because 
Uh, there's not much to do around there, but the resort itself is fairly nice, or the the development is is nice enough. Uh, it's very well protected, very inexpensive, and I think that's they're just trying to build up uh, more people there. Uh, but at this point, not too many people go there. I don't I don't know why, but they seem to miss that area because they're obviously uh, more well known Malaga and more well known places on the coast there that are always packed. So, well, I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm it, looking at it. It looks like it's got a good hard standing area, so you could store your boat over the winter if you wanted to as well. Yeah, I think so. I, I did. I did look into that. I think at at that point we, I, I actually thought it because we ended up being forced to, to stay there for a few days, and again, um, the next part of the trip was just more technical, getting past the the strait to get to Morocco, and. Uh, and we, we debated going down towards Algeria and then up the north coast of North Africa or hugging the south coast of Spain. And I went back and forth, and, and I think the winds just kept blowing from the west, just kept blowing and blowing and blowing. And uh, and obviously the tide at that point is going through the strait, but it was still chunking up uh, big seas. And as it funnels through the strait, it was really just blasting 30 knot, 35 not winds into that area. And I just could not get from, as you can see, Almeribar, uh, a line straight to uh, Marina Smear, which is uh, down the coast a little bit of Morocco uh, right there, a little south of Ceuta, about eight miles south of Ceuta. Uh, I just could not get a sailing line, uh, a good point of sail to, uh, to get there without being, being forced down south. And I did not want to end up close to Algeria. I didn't want to end up uh, in that part of Morocco, the southern part, because then we'd have to beat our way going up. And, of course, we had people arriving. Ah, ah schedules, right? How they uh, mm, yeah. really terrible. But I had factored in at least four or five days of, of kind of dead time. And so when we got to Almeramar, uh, we did have three or four days, a cushion. And it was, it was only really an overnight to get there. Um, but the winds were blowing. So we try to go out one day and we go out and I put us on our, uh, nice, what boat feels comfortable sailing and, and we're heading basically South. So we're not making any Western, uh, Western travel at all. So, um, and the boat's just getting beaten up. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Forget this. Uh, after a couple hours, turn it around, come back into the Marina, hang out there, wait for the weather to change. Weather kind of doesn't really change that much, but I come up with a different plan. I'm going to basically uh, motor, try to sail if we can, uh, on the south coast of Spain, close. We're going to hug in the, that, that coast right there, try to get a little uh, weather shadow of some sort, wind shadow. And then as we got close to Gibraltar and that part of Spain, it's right there. Then we're going to make a beeline straight south to get to, to Morocco. Uh, hoping that where the land goes in, part of Spain to where Gibraltar is, will give us some wind protection from what this blasting. So everything started out great, and uh, we did indeed do that. And the weather, we started very early in the morning, which tends to be less wind, and we just uh, made haste as much as we could. We were able to sail uh, quite a bit, but we had the engine running, and we are just booking. And uh, everything worked out fairly well. Then the winds picked up. And uh, we had a little pounding, but not too bad. And eventually, after 100 miles or so, we made our turn. 
and we made our turn to port heading due south and basically just cut straight across the the Strait of Gibraltar and at about I don't know what it was maybe one or two in the morning <laughs> so thank goodness for AIS and because uh, it was it was really a uh, and we had at one point we had 42 targets uh, of of these giant ships going east to west, which they do, going into the med, going out of the med, going into the med. We were a little frog, you know, the game Frogger mm-hmm. crossing the highway. Yeah, we were the frog, and um, we made our way uh, south. So we had good teamwork. My sister and I had really uh, worked things out at that point, and and she. She was, I was steering, she's looking at the AIS, I was looking at the radar, and we were matching up, uh, both of us with binoculars were matching up the uh, radar targets that we were getting with the AIS. And uh, we have an overlay on one chart plotter, and then we have a standalone AIS. She's reading off the target, how big it is, how fast it's traveling. I'm looking through binoculars, I can put a, you know, my eyes on the actual vessel, She's saying the closest point of approach. The AIS is telling us. I'm looking at the radar for anything further out. And, you know, back and forth all night of just trying to to, uh, follow the stern of another boat going by us, making sure we had plenty of uh, room. Because, listen, those boats aren't going to move. The ships are, uh, you know, cracking along at 25 knots. Uh, They are not going to, uh, nor can they maneuver. So we knew that. And it wasn't that risky. We we knew what we were doing. Uh, We had plenty of room. We never made the closest, the closest point of approach was probably half a mile at at the uh, closest that we would, we get there. And we could always turn around. I mean, that's, uh, we did that at one point. I just didn't feel comfortable uh, with uh, what was ahead. We just turned around. We zipped around in a circle a little bit. Then we let it let it get a little further uh, past us, and then we went in. But it was at night, you know, lights, and I don't think I ever would have done it without radar, without AIS. And even with radar, as you know, I mean, you have radar aboard? I do not have radar or AIS on my boat. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, even with I, – I did it at one point also, and uh, I remember taking a trip uh, up the Gulf of Maine from uh, – from Connecticut up to up to Maine, and going across the Gulf of Maine, I've done the trip many times before uh, without radar, and, uh, and and so using it with radar, all of a sudden there were all these fishing vessels everywhere. I could, I could see them here, I could see them there. I think how blissfully I was uh, just sailing along in the past, not not worrying about it, not even thinking about it, and just how stressful it was to have radar now. Because I could, I could see all the targets that I was going to miss. <laughs> so ignorance is, is was no longer bliss anymore, huh? <laughs> exactly, it's not now. So radar at night, I would never have made this trip with just the radar. I think because radar can give you false uh, messages, and there can be blips here, there can be blips there, and and having done radar for a long time at this point, uh, yes, it can be. But what if a front came in? What if it rained? What if it? There are a lot of options with with weather coming through the strait. Uh, AIS is all different. AIS is really a game changer. And even if you don't have radar uh, fronts, I would highly recommend just a small AIS unit, even just a receiver. I, I have a transceiver, so I'm sending out my details also. And uh, but just a, just as a receiver, which was the first one I had, just seeing what's around and the closest point of approach, and and you know obviously if you maintain course and speed, uh, the boat's going to pass at a certain. It, it it's just a 
it, it really is a game changer for a lot of these these things, the level of security that we had. And uh, so uh, we did I, it. I, I'll and definitely I'll, look into it. That may be my project for this year because I, don't, I really don't have any projects for this year except maybe uh, getting some uh, solar back on my boat. Both my solar panels eventually bought the dust uh, over the last 20 years, so I've got to get some new solar on it. And maybe the other project I'll do this year is AIS. So that's a, that's, yep. that's a good, good heads up. So you got about 133 miles, nautical miles, across that gulf, it looked like, that you did overnight then. Yep. Yeah, we had, and we got, so, yeah, so we went up overnight. So we're, it's, it's dark. We went through the strait, dodged all the uh, ships. We uh, now are on the Moroccan side. And we're approaching Morocco. It's very early in the morning. Sun's coming up over the mountains there. It's just really, really beautiful because the, uh, uh, the sun's rising and it's reflecting off the mountains that are right, uh, right ahead of us. And, and it, it was, it was really cool. It was a great, great morning. And then we get here on the radio, uh, you know, uh, vessel, 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 uh, you know, respond on uh, 16. I responded back. It was the Moroccan Coast Guard or Moroccan uh, Navy in a uh, in a vessel uh, that was uh, maybe at that point about a mile away from us. And they come steaming on straight straight towards us. And, uh, and they're communi- communicating with us. Who are you? Where are you from? You know, what's the nature of your uh, what are you doing here in essence? And I'm telling them we're going into Marina Smear. We have reservations. And, you know, our point we had departed from Spain and they get really close to us and then they start they start uh, saying uh, we welcome you we welcome you to Morocco thank you thank you so much for being here it is a it is a pleasure to see an American boat uh, we we love America please come to a you know and and uh, they drive up give us an escort into the into the marina right there and uh, call ahead they make sure everything's all set for us they're really treated like royalty it was uh it was amazing and then they, then they said a very interesting thing right at the right at the end as they they were turning around to go back out to patrol they said please please do not just stay at the uh at the marina please go into the interior of our beautiful country and it was uh they had a lot of pride a lot of pride in their country and uh and what we had experienced in in 2015 it was uh it was a uh it was a wonderful welcome to uh to morocco and uh and oh. so we we pull into the we pull into the marina right there. We run aground. So, uh, oh, yeah, I'm which, looking at it. It looks like it's really shallow right there around the tip there, isn't it, at the end of the breakwater? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a breakwater, and the, the instructions I had read, there were only a couple people that had, that had posted information about it had said, you got to hug the breakwater because it's the only – so I hugged the breakwater as close as I felt comfortable, <laughs> and we just – just, you know, in mud, just stopped. And uh, it was okay. And then there was a patrol boat that was anchored, and all the guys obviously had seen what was happening. They they all jump aboard this big, big patrol boat. They turn around, they they come up to us and and say, "You have to be closer. You have to be closer to the well." well to I the just I, from what I can see on Google Earth, I just measured what looks like a safe passage across there, and you cannot get any farther away than twenty one meters off the tip of that breakwater. You're going to run aground. There you go. Yeah. And I, you know, I, we, we have, uh, yeah, our, our five, five meter beam and, uh, al- along with the, the length, we were just, uh, you know, it, listen, it was, it, there was, there was water, but we had to kind of push through the mud, uh, in order to get back out and they were going to tow us. And so they threw us a line where, no, 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 we'll, we'll try to get out. I'm not a big fan of, 
of tying my boat to a giant powerboat because <laughs> bad things can happen with a breakwater right next to us. And I said, no, no, let us let us try to work this out, but please stand by. And and they did. Uh, we were able to maneuver our way out of the, the mud and, um, and, and work our way into the marina. And uh, there's a dock for visiting yachts that you, you pull up to. We did all the all the necessary immigration and uh, customs. Uh, it's all right there. And they're just the the officers are just sitting there waiting for us. They're sitting on chairs right outside their office. And so so is, right it, out. is this the building? I'm looking at Google Earth. Is this a building just to yep. the left as you enter right in the marina? Is that where the, the clearance exactly. is? Okay. Little dome, yep. little dome uh, uh, roof on it. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. That's it. That was uh, – we pulled up to that dock, uh, and Hassan was the name of the uh, the gentleman that we dealt with there. He was – he was uh, really terrific. Now, at that point, by the time we arrived, the family was flying in and had arrived already in the Marrakesh that day, and they were uh, getting to the hotel there. And we had arrived in the morning, probably about 8 a.m. in the morning. So we cleared in to the, to the country, and but all these forms needed to be filled out. And this was a, on a – I think we went in on a Saturday and 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 the the customs was there but the but the other immigration was not there and whatever it was the the office all the officers were not there so there was just a half of them were there for some whatever reason maybe they're just just hanging out or whatever so they did some of our paperwork but weren't able to do it all and said we'd have to wait until monday i was like ah you know this is the situation and and anything that we can we can do to, to make this work. And uh, and so Hassan said, oh, yes, yes, I'll, I'll, I will. I will do all this. I'll collect all the paperwork from you and I will do it on Monday for you. Oh, wow. So, so he basically uh, so we got the boat all all prepped. Uh, yeah. While we were at the dock, we filled it up with uh, fuel that was right there. Really cheap. I mean, the fuel was was crazy and expensive. I, I think at that point, per liter, it was you know thirty cents a liter or something. Wow. It was very inexpensive for uh, for fuel. So we filled up. We uh, we were assigned a berth, which of course the place was empty. Franz, it was empty. There was maybe maybe eight eight boats in this in this place that could could fit. 50 or 60. I mean, yeah, I'm easily. looking at it right now on Google Earth, and it looks like empty in the image they did uh, uh, when they, whenever the, this image was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. image and date. Uh, like yeah. And, and I kept wondering, why? Why Why are they? It was not an inexpensive marina, shockingly, uh, and it was more more expensive than Al Marimar mm-hmm. by far. I think it cost us maybe 70 euros a night to stay there it was not inexpensive which is interesting because it, there's a spanish company that runs it that manages that marina <laughs> and so you wonder do are that do they purposely keep it empty and why are they purposely keeping it empty and then the answer kind of came when we were given our berth and he says yes you will your your boat will be right there right next to one of the king's boats um. so we backed our boat in into this spot prime right on the right on the dock right there so if you're looking on Google Earth, it's basically a little further north of the, that building or west of that building. There's okay. a mm-hmm. there's a little causeway leading to that town. Right, right. there, you'll see a, a large yacht that's there and looks like one of those uh, 
uh, what do they call the Greek the Greek boats, the gulas oh, or whatever. The, the gulets, uh, yeah. Yeah, the gulet. Well, it kind of looks like like that, a very large, and that's one of the king's you know, party boats or whatever it is. It's uh, probably 100 feet long. And Right next to the and, parking lot there? Is that what you're talking about? That's it. Yeah, that's okay. it. Yeah. And so they, they stuck us right there, right next to... Uh, right next to his boat, we backed in. We tied up everything. We made sure everything was secure. Uh, Spanish guy comes up on a motorcycle uh, and makes sure everything's all set and explains to us how it works there, which is he's going to help us out, and uh, Hassan will help us out. And there's a guard at the end of the dock who will help us out 24/7, who will be there. Of course, we're intending to be there for maybe an hour, and then <laughs> then we're going to be gone for two weeks. So talk to Hassan explained what we were going to do and why we needed to leave and and if the boat was going to be secure we you know cleaned everything up we washed the boat down we secured everything down below uh made sure everything was secure for the family return in two weeks locked everything up and had promises of hassan that he would look after the boat make sure it's uh the lines are kept in whatever seas come in but it's a very protected harbor and we didn't notice uh later on when we were there for for a day or so we didn't really notice that there was much tidal work in there so we uh then my sister and i immediately took a cab to to a town of uh, tetuan and then from there we took an 11 and a half hour bus trip to get to uh, marrakesh oh really and, it's, that, uh, it's that long to get to marrakesh from there wow okay. it is a huge country i mean it is a if you look on the map if you look how large Morocco is, it is from north to south. It is just massive. It is a, a long, huge country. And, uh, yeah, we sat on this beautiful, luxurious bus, actually. It was very nice. We, we paid for the first-class bus, which I think the whole trip cost us maybe $20, 20 euros um, at that point, my sister and I. And, um, yeah, we got to Marrakesh that night. And we arrived uh, with the rest of the family on the same night. So after a thousand miles of sailing to get there and all the other things, we ended up uh, getting there the exact same day. And it, it worked out great. So so now you have us in uh, Morocco, Franz. Wow. Uh, how much of the land travel do you want to know about? So How much? Was, oh, uh, tell us about it. Uh, we've been going about 40, uh, about 45 minutes. Uh, fill us in for another 15 minutes if you want to. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the, 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 the quick Reader's Digest version of uh, what we did. We were in Marrakesh. Last time we were there, th two years before, we had been in Fez. And Fez is a very ancient city, and they're all old. But, uh, and, Mar and that's on the north part of uh, Morocco. And, uh, yeah, uh, Marrakesh is, is further south. And, and so we decided, well, we'll see a different city. And it is. It was a. It was a. It was a different city, a different feel. Uh, Fez has a, a very large uh, market and souks, and you really feel like you're walking through these medieval streets, and it's just incredible. You could just you, you close your eyes, you open your eyes, and you, you could be. It could be the year 1420, uh, except for people on cell phones. But uh, but what they're wearing, the donkeys, uh, no motor cars, uh, a really spectacular. If that's the kind of experience you want, which I definitely wanted my my family and daughters to see which they loved marrakesh is different marrakesh is more open a more of a, a city but still has the history and still has the spectacular uh just 
scenes where you just kind of stop sometimes and just look and a mix of old and new more more old and new than fez fez is a lot more old so but marrakesh is was terrific we um you know spent time obviously you're shopping you go around the markets the outdoor festivals that they have there uh at night when everything kind of cools off from the 115 degrees that it can be there everything cools off people come out and uh and when, when we had been there uh, we had been there before it was uh, Ramadan and uh, this time it was different. And so people were out uh, having dinner out in the in the squares that are that dot the city all over and uh, just a really cool town. So from there, we went up into the mountains and uh, we wanted to get into the Atlas Mountains. We had been there before. I wanted my sisters to see it, the rest of the family to see it. So we uh, went up into the mountains. We then drove. We had we had rented two vans for for a week of travel from marrakesh up into the atlas mountains uh down into the desert we had stayed with uh sarin ali's uh, uh desert oasis uh, there which was we had stayed there before in 2015 and this time we had 11 of us uh all all there in the tent city and and sarin ali and sarah's a, a british woman ali is is uh is from the the tribe of of uh, of Morocco of part of that the tribe in that area of the the desert there, and he um, and so he basically sets up everything. She she makes sure that the clients are arriving, and uh, they added three tents for us. Uh, we stay two nights in the desert, uh, sleeping outside because the tents were impossible to sleep in. They were about maybe 140 degrees inside the tents. Uh, the desert itself was hot, but again, as they say, it was hot, but it was dry. <laughs> it was very dry heat. Uh, it didn't really bother me. I felt much more uncomfortable in Italy when it was 90 degrees than I was in Morocco when it was over a hundred in the desert, but you do have to drink a lot of water. You can get lightheaded. Um, but we had a great time. We had camel trips up into the dunes, uh, the, uh, sunsets were spectacular. Sunrises were incredible. Uh, it, we have a we have a photograph of someone had taken up on a dunes down into the camp very early morning, and the sun was just rising. And you just see all these these queen size beds all just sitting out as outside tents uh, with bodies on them, and that's that's where we slept uh, every night. Uh, the two nights we were there, and we went into the little town Marzuga, uh, where they at Sarad Ali had a had a an inn or a hotel there, Riyadh, that we would hang around the pool and had a little lunch there, taking us out of, out of the heat of the summer because there was really no escaping it at, at noon to six o'clock at night. So they took us into this little town, more of a little oasis town of Marizuga, which used to be on the other side of the dunes. But 30 years ago, wind shifted and buried the town and they just up everything and and rebuilt the town on the southern part of the dunes. So, so it's, 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 really, it's really amazing. And we did take a tour of the old part of the town, of the old town. And, it, and, and it's really incredible how fast nature just reclaims things. Right? It just, uh, especially in the dunes, and they're constantly shifting. And uh, when we were going across by, 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 uh, by camel, the... Uh, the camel driver who was basically leading the way, uh, the, everyone was asking, well, he must know the way to the camp because he can uh, – he recognizes the dunes. 
but that's not possible. He, he can't recognize the dunes because they shift every day. Every time a windstorm comes through, the desert looks completely different, completely different. And uh, trees that didn't, weren't there before, little bushes reappear. And the landscape is constantly changing. So they just have a great sense of uh, seeing where the sun's coming from, how far they have to walk a certain way. And uh, it really is a spectacular culture. Uh, we, really had a, we really had a great time. So, and it was out of the desert. We went back out of the desert, back up in the Atlas Mountains. On the way back, uh, we went to uh, Casablanca for the last last day before the flights. Most of the family flew out, and uh, and Casablanca, that's a city. Uh, Casablanca is just um, uh, like any other city. I think the king of Morocco has decided that was going to be the financial center of Morocco. So a lot of big buildings. Um, and the culture that goes along with big, big buildings and not really any, any history, uh, around the city. It just looked like a, an average city and that, which is fine. It, it was, it was, we stayed at a, a beautiful hotel there for the last night, had a spectacular meal, uh, family all together. And then everyone flew out. Most, most everyone flew out the next day, seven flew out and then my family all stayed and we, uh, at that point, we took uh, uh, a van all the way back up to uh, Marina Smear. took us about eight, eight and a half hours of driving and stopping along the way, seeing some more sights, and I got to the boat and then uh, hung out there for a day or so and making sure the boat was ready to go. And then uh, we left, said goodbye to Hassan. And uh, made our way out and around into the Strait of Gibraltar. We had to get through there. And I got to tell you, Strait of Gibraltar, for some reason, just just hates me personally, I think. For some reason, it just uh, – uh, every single time we've gone through it. In 2015, we got our asses kicked trying to get, get in there. We had to, to uh, head off to Cadiz as our first point. We were in, intending to go into Gibraltar. We just couldn't get through the strait. At that point, we had 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 a wind against current, so the seas were really monstrous. Uh, not the place to be. We had, we bailed out and gone to Cadiz in 2015. This time, uh, the winds were were forecast to be between two and five. It's beautiful. We were just going to catch the eddy on the southern part or the north part. We're going to motor our way right through if we had to. No big deal. No, honey, everything will be just fine. Okay, here here's the weather forecast. We made the turn around Suta, and I'll be damned. It's like 20, 25 knots of wind, blowing like right in our face. I'm like, how is this possible? So we um, we sailed across to the north part, uh, southern Spain, and expected trying to get some kind of eddy that would help us just get around the corner. We just needed to get around the corner. So we just got beaten up, beaten up, beaten up, and we finally made our way around the corner, and we're finally able to sail, and we sailed all night and uh, made our way up to Cadiz and we ducked into Cadiz and uh, which was which was terrific Cadiz is a great great town um, beautiful squares wonderful restaurants um, just really nice the marina is nice the marina is called uh, Marina American of all things uh, or Marina America and we it's a little walk it's about a mile walk to get to the town but you know stretches your legs you feel good after you've had a big meal. So did you consider going into Barbate or not? We did. And actually, we, we almost 
we almost stopped in there uh, on the on the way up. Uh, there was an issue. We were a little offshore on the way up, and we had been warned about uh, fishing nets. Yeah. There were a lot of fishing yep. along that way. Mm-hmm. With and uh, and at that point, uh, the sailing was going pretty well. And we just said, yeah, what the hell? We're, we're just going to continue on. And the sailing was so good that we arrived off of Cadiz way too soon. I mean, maybe three hours early. So <laughs> if you get on our website and you see our, our plotting of our, of our, uh, our GPS plots, uh, you'll see us going around in circles and circles and circles. <laughs> I think we just, we just, for three hours, just went around in circles. And as you know, you, you can't just you know, shut the engine down and bob. You know, it, it just it can't happen in the seas. It's just going to roll the boat from side to side. So we we just made this kind of racetrack thing. We just did big racetrack for a mile, just you know, slow speed, but just keeping the boat so it's comfortable. Everyone went to sleep. I just kind of drove around in circles for a few hours. And uh, but you know, when you're sailing and it's going along beautifully, man, damn it, you just can't slow down. I mean, that's just one of those one of those things. I knew I was going to arrive too early. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I could tell. You know, the chart plotter was saying you're going to arrive 0400. You know, it's like ah. so. Um, but I, I couldn't stop myself. I got there early, and we weren't going to go in in the dark. It's it's a little tricky getting into this in this little marina that's right there. And uh, but eventually we pulled in. Uh, Stayed there for overnight, actually two days. I think we spent there, which was uh, which was beautiful. Uh, thoroughly yeah, enjoyed yeah. that. When Go I ahead. I remember staying into Cadiz a long time ago, and in '97. Yeah. And as I was, I remember walking down that breakwater, and there were millions of cats all over that breakwater. Are they still there? <laughs> yes, they are. Not the same cats, but yes, uh, they, yeah. Cats everywhere, and wow, my daughters love that. We, we must have uh, hundreds of pictures of cats. Cats everywhere. Cats in Italy. Cats in Morocco. Cats in Spain. Oh yeah, we have. Uh, there, there were cats on that on that breakwater. We we walked uh, down the breakwater back and forth. They have this like performance center that's on the uh, the top part of the breakwater where they do rock concerts, etc. And uh, you know, it's kind of an outdoor urinal during the day. It's a place that's really ugh, ugly, but <laughs> you walk through it. You walk past it. And cats, yeah, cats everywhere, and uh, yeah, so yeah, okay, they're cats, still there. Cats exist to be the things all all over Europe. We 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 ran into that in Italy, and, and something about old towns and cats. I think there's a uh, you can imagine the cats have been there for hundreds of years. So so with Cadiz, Cadiz was great. We stayed there for a couple of days, and then we made our the last leg, which was basically to Lagos, and uh, that ended up being. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we, we left uh, Cadiz. The plan was I was going to head north because the winds were from the north. Uh, we just weren't getting any, any any satisfaction from the wind at this point. West, west, northwest. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the wind at some point, which is currently blowing from the west, is going to, uh, to somehow back around to the north, which it, I think it was supposed to do. We wanted the German wind, Franz. We wanted the German wind. So... It was not going to, or the French wind, I guess, at that point. But we, so the plan was, I was going to go up to hug the coast of Spain, go up that, go up that coast to the to the crook right there, and then, then tack over, hopefully onto a nice starboard tack, and and race across uh, Spain, getting into Lagos in Portugal. Uh, the plan sort of worked, uh, except as we were getting getting further north, we were kind of motor sailing to get north. The wind did indeed shift. But we started getting all these AIS contacts, ships, like tons of them. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is not 
then we discover that there's a a a, um, a port and right in that crook right there there's it's called um harong or harong whatever it is is a is a big tanker port where i guess uh, spain gets a lot of its uh its fuel delivered into so these giant tankers are going to this port now of course you know that would have been something i should have uh, probably done my due diligence <laughs> on the trip so we we tacked earlier than we were going to and uh kind of beat into it a little bit and then the wind did indeed come from the north and we had one of those nights of just spectacular sailing boats going nine knots hull speed basically for my boat uh cranking along winds were in the 20s high 20s at some point topping off in the 30s but we were reefed down sea was fairly comfortable uh and you know we weren't having bashing in it so we had kind of this the halcyon days of uh, of uh at least eight hours of just beautiful stuff then as we got close to, to um, oh, I'm trying to think what the little, that little town, uh, uh, Faro, Faro, yep, there's a little bump that sticks out of, uh, of Portugal called Faro, and uh, it's actually where I'm going to fly into this summer, and that little bump has a big mountain on it, a giant mountain, and w- so we're, we're sailing along, it's 25 knots of wind, we're just cranking along, I'm in like in heaven, this is just beautiful, I'm looking around, enjoying the whole thing. And then it was like a light switch, like someone had just just turned it off. Within a hundred feet, the boat just stopped. <laughs> it, was, it was the most astounding thing. It was like a wind shear in reverse. There was like, it was we we just basically. It was astounding. I, I've experienced before, which the boat just stopped, and so it stops. The sails are and the seas are are just kind of rolling us around, rolling us around. And the boat stopped. It's the damnedest thing. So I decide to start the engine. Start the engines. The engine roars to life. Okay, this is fine. I'm start going. I'm motoring a little ways. Sails are still up. I figured wind's got to come back at some point. And uh, and I and I hear a strange sound coming out of the motor. I'm I'm, I'm hearing that gurgling sound. Right. That oh. that that sound. That sound of of air that, oh. without any water. Oh yeah. yeah. So. I look over and I see uh, exhaust coming out with no water. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Okay, so we had had a little issue, my sister and I, when we were in Gaeta starting the engine uh, of that. And I had just gunned it. It, it was like an, I, I thought it was just an airlock. You know how you get an airlock, just kind of force it through, and uh, eventually it gets the water. So, so now we're bobbing around, and the boat's going from gunnel to gunnel back and forth. And, and I, I shut the engine down. I go down below and do all the normal things, you know, start at the water. So start, start the through hull, check the, you know, the thing, going, going to the filter, going into the, into the uh, raw water pump, seeing if that's anything, taking hoses off, turn, cranking the engine, seeing if the water's coming out. Yep, it is. It's, it's coming into the engine. What the hell's going on? Okay, I, it must have a, an airlock. At some oh, no. point, l- it l- must l- have air. Let me make a prediction. Mixing elbow. Yeah, go ahead. That's exactly right. A crack in the exhaust elbow. But uh, I was still eventually – yeah, thanks, Franz. Where the hell were you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I worked my way through the engine, and, and I looked carefully. The muffler is leaking, and there's a slight crack on the exhaust elbow. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Uh, the last night, I sailed this damn boat 1,100 miles, right? Uh, no issues at all. The very last night I'm going to go into port to put the boat 
put up for 10 months at a marina that could do all this work. I'm bobbing, you know, 40 miles from my destination. I was really pissed. So it was it was a very uh, uh, yeah, my my wife was so sick of my cursing in the in the cockpit, in the engine room. Uh, The kids were asleep forward. But I was um, I was fit to be tied working the thing up, trying to. So I get my figure. I'm going to get my rescue tape out. I'm going to do a little thing here or there. But I I'm going to try it one more time. I'm really going to gun the hell out of the engine and see if I can just uh, get this airlock out of the thing. I finally do. Engine cranks over. After 45 minutes, the crank starts. It starts spilling water. Okay. Ah, good. Yes. Okay. Good. 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 I uh, I taped up the part that was leaking that I could see, um, so that it's not sucking air into the into the system, and uh, we limp our way. We get into the into Lagos. We we pull up at the now that entrance there in, in the Lagos is a very narrow. It's like a little river entrance going into that, and we arrive at around noon. Okay, by the time we get there, it's noon, and it is just filled with little boats. I mean, filled with these little, you know, little speed boats, these little twenty footers, these these guys just racing around everywhere you could possibly see. And directly ahead of us is a pedestrian bridge that's about, you know, forty feet high that they have to open to allow boats to get into. And there's a waiting dock uh, for visiting yachts that you have to pull over on the side right there. But I, I would say it's I don't know what the distance is across this little little entrance to the whole thing, but it's it's it feels like. Uh, the boats are, are, are three feet from you all around, which they probably are. And I'm maneuvering my boat in and the tide is is sucking us into the into the marina, basically into that bridge that's right there. So I'm putting the boat in reverse to try to stay where I am because they're telling us that we have to wait for the either the bridge to open or a spot on the visitor's dock right there. And then I have to sign in and pay and then go into the marina at that point. So I'm trying to as you know, backing up is is not the ideal thing to do in a boat in a in a in the tide against the tide. So I'm I'm trying to I can't turn the boat around. I don't have enough room to, to turn the boat around. So I just kind of stall right there. I'm trying not to hit the boats on my right that are they're trying to get out. And they're similar boats to my to my own on the dock, kind of just taking their time. And I'm like, you know, I need to get on the dock at some point. Are you going to leave? And the guy said, we're going to leave in about 10 minutes. I said, okay, fine. So we're, we're killing time there. And they eventually leave. We eventually get onto the dock and, um, tie up, we check in and then they open up the pedestrian bridge and we, we go in and we, we were settled into the marina. And it was, it's, it, it is a little, again, a little resorty town that has a lot of uh, restaurants connected to the marina right there. And we were not going to leave the boat there. That was just, we're leaving it there just for a couple days as we prep the boat for for hauling her out where we actually have the boat now is at a, at a, a marina called sopromar it's a yard and if you can see on google maps as you enter lagos there's a a working port or a, you know working area uh off to the right right there before, which is before the marina then is where you're talking about right, right before the marina exactly that that right there is sopromar which is a really well-known yard to a lot of arc guys uh, for, for maintenance. And, and it's, it has a lot of really, uh, very modern facilities, uh, that are at the actual buildings are very modern thing, but the actual area of the water in front is, is really dicey. So are you, so you're on the hard there, is that correct? So we're on the hard there. Yeah. Then they, they hauled us, uh, hauled us out, uh, after we'd been there a couple of days and, uh, put us on the hard and, uh, yeah. 
then we said said goodbye to the boat and we went up to Lisbon and flew out. So that's pretty much uh, gets us to where we uh, where we are right now. And a lot of a lot of work's been done on the boat over the winter and uh, just uh, little details because labor is so inexpensive there and getting work done and any work that I might have thought I would would like to have done in the next two years at you know, 40 euros an hour is different than coming back to Connecticut at $125 an hour. So and any kind of specialty mechanic work. Yeah. So, now, what's the what's the cost of the, the the dry dock there? What's it like? Well, again, it's a discussion on how much work I was going to have done <laughs> and, and how long it was going to be there. And I, I think it ended up it's going to cost me about five to six thousand dollars to leave the boat there for for the whole time. But that includes a lot of work done okay. on the boat. All right. So, so for me, uh, leaving the boat here in Connecticut cost me six thousand dollars for a six-month uh, summer uh, docking here mm-hmm. in Connecticut. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, as far as I was concerned, it was it's less expensive than leaving my boat here at home <laughs> when I'm here, and I'm I'm having you know a few thousand dollars worth of work done it also so it, it's worked out where yeah i could justify it I, I could justify the expense of getting work done there because it was uh, uh they were going to roll it into a sort of a package deal of putting it up on land so okay uh, so now now let let me ask you a question uh so what are your plans for next summer because you really don't want to cross the atlantic until december so what are you gonna nope. do okay Across the Atlantic in June, July. So, uh, oh, you uh, are going to cross in June, probably, and July, huh? Yep. C- come on, Franz. It has to be an, an adventure, right? So, uh, we're going <laughs> to we're going to listen. There, uh, listen, Cornell, Jimmy Cornell uh, states that it is possible, and uh, the the plan is just to be uh, smart about it. So, we're going to try to be smart about it. Uh, we're going to go from from Lagos to. Uh, to the Azores, okay. and we're going to work our way. The rest of the family, same cast of characters as last summer in Morocco, we're going to fly to the Azores, and we're going to visit three islands in in the Azores, ending up in in Horton, Fayal, and and that's about 300, 300 mile stretch across all the island group of the Azores, and so that'll we'll do that in about three weeks. So we'll go one week to the Azores, then we'll take. Uh, Three weeks going through the Azores, or two and a half weeks, and get to Horta. And they'll have some crew. We'll be flying into Horta. Most of the family takes off. And then we'll sail from there to Newport, Rhode Island, but not in a rum line. Uh, as you, you, you brought up, it's not the ideal time of year to go from east to west across the Atlantic. And the reason is because of the prevailing winds, especially up the east coast, are from the south, southwest. And which makes, a, as people know, a trip to Bermuda a pain in the ass, a trip back from Bermuda, lovely. So uh, we're going to leave the Azores, and Jimmy Cornell suggests the first thing you do is head south. Uh, head south to get down to the latitude of Bermuda, basically. And so we'll work our way south from the Azores. Uh, good wind coming out of the Azores. It should be pretty favorable to us to get south. Uh, that time of year, you know, I look at the uh, the pilot charts that I've been, you know, going over and over many, many times, and uh, the, the winds are prevailing. Uh, I should be okay. We should be okay heading south. 
from there. Then we'll have to pick a spot that we will start heading north, uh, northwest at some point. But, um, you know, you have to thread the needle. We don't want uh, bad weather systems uh, that will be spinning off the east coast. We'll be entering into the hurricane season storms. We want to be aware of that, of anything forming in the Caribbean that might be coming up. Last time we went over in 2015, there was a tropical storm that got stuck in North Carolina, and we took off early in order to make it to Bermuda before it, it roared up the coast. And we 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 lucked out. It worked out well. We Even if it had, had taken off and come up the coast, we would have been past it at that point. But you know, I'm very aware of, of things that come up the coast, and uh, and but we won't, don't want to get too far north because of uh, ice issue and and just going too far uh, north where we're going to have to really beat going south. You know, the the trip from Nova Scotia in the summer uh, back down to uh, to New York or or Ca- uh, Connecticut is is not fun, and uh, so we don't want to be headed too far. We don't want to get too far north, and so. The plan would be keep fairly south, watch the weather, uh, watch what's coming towards us. Uh, if anything's coming up the East Coast, we can we can try to, if we're close enough to Bermuda, we have that option to bail, get into Bermuda. Uh, so Bermuda is our, 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 our safety haven if, uh, if we have any issues. If a storm comes up uh, before Bermuda spirals out in the Atlantic, we'll turn around. So okay. Okay. Uh, it, it's... Uh, you know, I, I I wrote something on on the blog on the on our uh, uh, on the website about uh, this guy named Stan Honey, who's a really legendary navigator, and he's been around the Earth numerous times. He holds all these records for uh, speed around the Earth, and and he's a fantastic navigator. And I saw him at a safety seminar, and he said he, he'd be a great interview for you. He'd be a great interview. He is a fascinating guy, and and uh, but he's he's kind of like this nerdy nerdy dude and and you look at him and you go my god this guy's like a rock star complete rock star and he's explaining at at this uh, for the bermuda race he's explaining getting to bermuda and and the systems that come up the gulf stream what you got to watch out for you got to do it and he showed a uh his his chart his gps plots of one of the races and he's in this like superb you know hundred foot sleigh that has a crew of 40 aboard the thing and he's navigating uh, owned by a billionaire who's probably, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. And Stan Honey sees the weather and says, no, we're going to turn around. And so they turn around for like eight hours, let this system go by. A bunch of boats are wrecked, you know, dismasting of a couple boats. Not a good situation. He turns back around and they end up winning the race. Hmm. So he said out of that, what you should know is, he said, I'm a coward. I don't want to face these winds, which, you know, he's not a coward uh, by any means. But his lesson to all of us was basically, you know what? Swallow your pride. You know, sometimes the best course of action is to turn around. I mean, just go in the other direction. Get mm-hmm. away. If yeah. you're not a boat that can go 100 miles an hour, uh, just uh, turn around. So there's no no harm in that. And if we have to turn around, I have to leave the boat in the Azores for um, – for the winter, that's what I'll do. So uh, I, I'm not going to go into a situation that's going to imperil the lives of everyone aboard. That's not the point. Uh, so so anyway, once, that's, so once uh, you get to the Azores, you'll have done a complete circle to the middle of the Atlantic at that point in time. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it'll be. Uh, we're really looking forward to going through the Azores. We missed it last time because we we got to Horta. 
then we basically stopped off in, in Tercera, another island, and then we booked directly to yeah, uh, yeah. what was Gibraltar. We, we just we, – we had a time – we really wanted to allow ourselves a few. Now you went through there, right? I did, did and, and, and oh yeah, I spent about a week there. Um, and and I, to me, I wish I'd I, I'd go back and spend. I, I may fly back sometime and just spend some time traveling around by ferry. It might be just as easy because there's not very many anchorages there. You got to Sarah and you got Horta, and that's really about it. There's not yeah. that many places. I think, to uh, well, since since you've been there, and and. Uh, Delta is now flying into uh, into the Azores, which kind of sucks in a way because it, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot of people there that didn't get there by boat. And so, uh, but it's great for the Azorians. I'm sure they're building hotels and they're doing. Uh, I, you know, I want everyone to see it before. This is only the second year I think their uh, Delta is spying, but it's really cheap to get there. I mean, I think a round trip flight was like five hundred dollars oh, wow. from the East Coast. And so for the relatives, and it's very inexpensive to stay there. I mean, we're getting a villa right on the water, uh, and I think each person has to spend about thirty dollars each for us to, you know, <laughs> to spend the three hundred fifty hours a night at this in this villa. So it's a very inexpensive vacation, but it won't be for long, I'm sure. Yeah. And they have they have built many more ports. So each island has a has a good breakwater with um, with pretty decent docks. And even when we were there in 2015, uh, the, the ARC – see, the ARC goes through there, and I think the Azorians are trying to get that big fleet to, uh, to spend some more time in the Azores. They generally don't, but they generally make their way for the big party, which we missed last time because we could care less. And uh, uh, we would have spent more time in the Azores if we had time. So we're going to rectify that, that uh, mistake and uh, spend some time uh, there this time. And uh, I can report back later about that. But uh, yeah, and we're uh, and for crew, I'm using my my uncle, my sister, my daughter might do the first leg. And I have uh, an Italian gentleman. I've done a little crew search. Uh, any of your listeners interested? There's one spot still open, and uh, we, it's not totally required. I'll have five five for crew, but I have room for six to make a room. So if uh, any of your listeners really. Uh, really having an urge to uh, go against the current across the Atlantic. Uh, <laughs> get in contact through the web, through our website. But, uh, so, but otherwise... Uh, so is this for the full crossing? Uh, for the full crossing, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I tell you, I, you know, I, I've got so many people that, uh, that come up to me and say, when are you bringing your boat across? And I tell them, they say, I want to be on that crew. I want to be on that crew. I want to be on yeah. that crew. And I'm saying, why? Why? <laughs> I mean, why? Well, see, we've talked about this before. I mean, people are wired differently, you know, and it's just it. it, it uh, the idea of being in the med for years and years uh, just doesn't doesn't really appeal to me. Doing this big distance that it does appeal to me and it appeals to some people. I mean, I got in this crew search uh, crew. Uh, what's the name of the crew find crew finder? I think is website that I'd used before. And that's how I got Pierre and Tom. These two fantastic crew that I had going the other way, and I, I've gotten 50 responses, and and it's it's amazing how how I mean every everything from from some 19 year old kid to to a 78 year old gentleman, and and it's uh, I mean people are interested now how far they would have gotten in the process in terms of actually doing it and flying in uh, is another thing, but there are a lot of people that that are interested in that that kind of of uh, of travel. Yeah, I, I sometimes. Uh, wonder why and and it's a big commitment of time but but i i thoroughly enjoy that 
that Zen of C. Mm-hmm. Um, really do enjoy. My sister and I had a fantastic time crossing the med. It was just, just it, it, again, you just kind of get into that cycle, and it's something that's very therapeutic for I find for me. And other people, I'm sure, they feel that same way. It's just uh, it, it feels good after after what I do most of the time, all year long, to just uh, to just get away and oh. and find that I find I, I just have to have it. Oh, each, I, I, each I absolutely understand. Every time I get back to New York and New Jersey and the East Coast, I just ask myself, why would I ever want to live here? Why? Why? You know, and- <laughs> that's funny. You should say that's funny. You should say that. I get on that that hill and snowbird, and there are all those skiers like everywhere. Snowboarders. <laughs> I'm crazy. I got to get back to New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Maybe that's not true, but still, yeah, we all have, have our crosses to bear. So that's, uh, it is what it is. Anyway, <laughs> so that's that, that's that Franz. That's, uh, caught up to the point where we are. Uh, I will gladly report back, uh, later on. And, uh, yeah, you can, you can uh, follow, follow us on the website. I will have a tracker that will, um, I'll be able to communicate. I'm going to get one of those Iridium Goes uh, for my birthday coming up, and uh, that way it'll track, and I also can can text to my heart's desire, which I don't really want to, but there will be uh, others aboard that will be able to do that and uh, make the family feel good that they'll know at least where we are. And when we do that turnaround, which we hopefully won't do, but if we have to, we will. So anyway, that's uh, that's the summer. Well, that's 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 it's great to catch up with you, Dan. I've I've missed talking to you. I know uh, you've been busy, and uh, but it's good to talk to you again and catch up. And you'll have some more adventures to tell us when you uh, when you cross the Atlantic. Now you're not going to you're going to get straight to, to Connecticut. You're not going to go down to uh, the Caribbean and spend some time down there. No, it's not the time of year to be there. And, no, it's uh, not. I think what yeah. I think we'll we'll just. Uh, We'll clear in in, in in Newport, Rhode Island. Is mm-hmm. probably what I'll do, and then I'll go through the the race, Long Island Sound, back to Connecticut. Uh, I think at this point, uh, Newport's the place to go. I'd love to go through New York City, but <laughs> clearing into New York requires. Get this: I would have to take the boat into a marina, someplace there, Liberty Marina or something in New Jersey. Then I'd have to get on public transportation or rent a car and drive to JFK and clear into the country. <laughs> which, which seems insane uh but uh in newport all that i have to do is pull up to a dock they have a dock that's right there the fort right there and and uh they'll, they'll meet us there and the uh, we can just clear in right there which is great and they have nice restaurants in town and in, in newport and uh, it's one of my one of my favorite towns to hang out in anyway oh it's a neat so, town. And it, yeah it's a, it's a yeah then we'll have there. a leisurely leisurely trip back uh, depending upon what, how much time we have at that point, I'm not sure, uh, how quick the crossing will be and when we get back. But if I have, you know, I have a spare week right there, I'll certainly, uh, gun call my way back to home. All right. Well, I want to report at the end of uh, next summer. So put me on the list okay. and get, get back deal. in touch with me. Thanks, Dan. That's and when you deal. get out to Salt Lake, I did, you, did you get out here to ski at all last year? I did not. My oh. wife did. Uh, yeah, she actually went about uh, three weeks ago or so and uh, met her sister there. And they went out. She went out with a friend, and she said it was fantastic. They had a blizzard. It was uh, spectacular snow. So I, I, I'm I'm learning that the time to be up there and skiing is not not Christmas anymore. It just seems it's getting later and later in the year. Is that true? Well, this year was an unusual year. We had a terrible first part of the season and a great a great uh, spring. Spring skiing this yeah. year has been fantastic. In fact, I was skiing yeah. a week ago today, 
and we had about 10 inches of new powder, dry powder, at, uh, at, at actually at Snowbird. So, yeah. Yep. There, there you go. Well, maybe maybe this year uh, I'll get back, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway. All right. Things Thanks. are good. We'll be in contact. But thanks, Franz. It's 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 always great talking to you, and I hope you have a great summer. I, I I'm keeping up with a podcast, listening and finding out what you're up to, also. Okay. And, and, and I love the uh, the explanations of each island and and the approaches and and what they're all about. It, it really uh, it, it you have a great way about uh, telling the stories of your adventures. So really enjoy it. Thank, keep up. Thanks, keep up Dan. You have a great uh, you're a great storyteller as well. So keep it up. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. We'll talk soon. Okay, Take bye. care. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.